So um, we've been kind of marching through this book called James. Um, my response to Kaylin this morning was, I hate this book. I'm glad everybody else likes it. I can't wait till we get to Daniel. Then I'll probably complain about Daniel too, but that's beside the point. Um, I had to tell you, I do not do this stuff well. Okay? Um, but we're going to march through it, and we're going to ask God to show us what he wants us to learn. Could I get that first slide from you? And we have marched through James 1, okay? Um, you kind of have that introduction, the first couple verses of James 1. Um, starting at 112, you kind of have this kind of recapitulation of the introduction that through trials, we become like Jesus. Through trials, we gain patience so we have the crown that is ours in Christ. Okay? Um, through the things that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis, God is using all of those things to rub off the ways of the world so that we don't have a foot both in the world and a foot in his kingdom so that we can be completely in his kingdom. And then he goes on in verses 13 and he basically talks about what it is to be born into Christ. Um, our old nature remains active, but the Father is bringing us into a new nature. He's trying to change us from the inside out. And so we've been given birth, and the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives. And we begin to grow. We begin to grow by hearing and receiving and obeying the word of God, by putting our faith in what God says. Um, you know, one of the, uh, Tim had a definition for faith last week that I wrote down and I really liked it, but I can't remember it right now. I'm going to go back and look at it again. But one of them that I've come across this last summer has been it's taking God at its word, at his word, about who he is and what he says about who he is and what he says about the world and what he says about us. See? When I'm born again, I'm born to completely be re-educated and I'm re-educated by looking into the word and letting God tell me who I am and who he is and what everything is really about. Um, and then James kind of begins to develop his themes and he basically says um, there are three notable developments which kind of happen in us if we're becoming like Christ. And one is we begin to control our tongue. Two is we begin to care for the needy. And, and three is we begin to leave lives of purity. And the rest of the book of James, chapters two and three and four and five, develop those three themes. Okay? But they kind of do it in a weird order. So where he's just got through... Um, in a sense saying we need to control the tongue, he's going to talk about that in chapter 3. Instead, he's going to pick up in chapter 2, caring for the needy. Um, another slide that shows the same thing was the one, next one that um, Caitlin showed you last week. Um, we learned about three truths about God, about his spontaneous care for the helpless and his word of truth and his 
purposes that we have live holy lives. And then he begins to talk about those three themes about how we're supposed to have a caring ministry, how we're supposed to control our tongues, how we're supposed to live holy lives. These things are not things that we do to receive the kingdom. These are things that happen in us as we begin to live in the kingdom. The kingdom is a free gift. But the question is, are we living in the kingdom? And James is constantly helping us evaluate whether or not I'm two-faced. Do I have a foot in both worlds? Or have I fully made that decision to live in God's kingdom? As we begin today, um, I, I'm gonna tell you, I really struggled with this message today, and so I went to the internet to try and find something that would help us. So we're gonna watch this. Tim Keller, when he um, talks about this passage in James, goes back and asks the question, when you look in a mirror, what do you see? He says, when you look in a mirror, in that mirror of scripture, what do you see? He says, if you only look at scripture for what you are to do, you're going to fail miserably. Because if you try and do what scripture calls you to do without first seeing who you are, you will not have the ability to be what God calls you to be. Our doing comes out of being. Okay. We don't do, we need to be first. So as we open up chapter two, the first question becomes, in a sense, who are we and who is Jesus? See, I have to start, as I begin to go through chapter two, from a place that basically says, I'm created in the image of God. Okay. Not only am I created in the image of God, but you also are created in the image of God. Okay. When, when I look at somebody, you know, I, I need to start from understanding who I am and, and, and who the other person is. As an, need to understand that even though I've been created in the image of God, I've not lived up to that image. In fact, just the opposite. I've squandered that image away. And that who I am before God is an absolute helpless, poverty-stricken, person who in and of herself really 
can accomplish nothing of worth or value, no matter how hard I try. Okay. But in the midst of my being, this poor, helpless individual, I have a God who looked at me and said, that's not how I created you. A God who had everything, but chose to give up everything in order that I might have everything that I lost in the fall. Scripture tells us that Jesus had everything and gave it all up, that he became poor in order that I might be rich. If I try and do what James says without first understanding who I am, a child of God, who has been given everything by the one who is everything. Only then can I go out and share everything with others. James writes in chapter two, brothers and sisters, um, and, and it's interesting, he's talking to people who are in the church. He's talking to people who are believers. <clears throat> believers in our glorious Jesus Christ must not show favoritism, must not show partiality, must not make judgments about other people. Now, I need to tell you, I really do not like the way the NIV translates the Greek in that. The Greek in that, everybody struggles with how to do that. Um, the Greek reads this way. My brethren, not with respect to persons or not with partiality, do have the faith of our Lord Jesus, do have the faith of Jesus Christ, Lord, of glory. Brother, not with judgment, not with partiality, but instead you must hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What is the faith of God? See, not just believers in Jesus, we must hold to the faith of Jesus. What does it mean to have the faith of Jesus? See, Jesus knew who he was. He knew who Father God was. He knew what the kingdom of God was all about. And his faith was to come and live on this earth as a kingdom person. And he lived a kingdom life because he knew that 
this worldly kingdom was of no consequence. That the only kingdom that mattered was the kingdom of God. And so rather than looking at what the world says, Jesus came and lived as a kingdom person on this earth. Recognizing that in God is everything. The word glory there is significant. Um, in a sense, James is, there, there are lots of different ways that the New Testament refers to Jesus. In fact, I have a slide. Where's the next slide? Um, different titles of Jesus as you read through. The, he's God's son. He's Jesus, our Lord. He's, he's Christ, the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. Um, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the beginning, the firstborn among the dead. He's the great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All these titles that we have in scripture tell us about the totality and the breadth of who Jesus is. But this title, the Lord Jesus of glory, it's saying that all of the weightiness of God, all of the attributes of God, are found in Jesus. Moses, when he leads the um, Israelites out of Egypt and he, and he gets to the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments and the Israelites continually blow it and, and God continually forgives them and God and Moses continually have this out. At one point, Moses is growing in this relationship with God and he cries out to God and he says, God, before we go on from this mountain, let me see your glory. Let me see who you are. Let me see the fullness of your character and your attributes and your power. And Moses and God goes, you do that, you're not gonna be able to live. You can't stand looking at me face to face. I'm too glorious. The Shekinah glory of God. When Solomon built the temple it says the glory of God came and dwelled in the temple and nobody could go in because it was so powerful. And God puts Moses in a rock and he passes before Moses and he declares his name. And it's actually significant. He says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed the name of the Lord and he passed in front of Moses shouting, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And Moses saw the back of God, and as he came down from the mountain, his face so shone that they had to put a veil over his face. And what James is saying, in Jesus we see the totality of this glorious God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and partial and love and faithfulness. He's not a God who wants to judge. He's a God who's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And that glory that God has is the glory that he gives to us. See? 
And I'm called to take hold of that and allow that to shine through me. And at one level, what James is saying is if this isn't happening in your life, then maybe you haven't realized who you are. Maybe you're still trying to live with one foot in the world rather than to totally in who you are in Christ. We are created in the image of God. We are created to bear the Shekinah glory of God. We are to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness because that is what God has given to us in abundance and we're called to give it to others. And so the question comes, how are we doing? I, I loved it when Kathy was reading um, that verses from the message. Kind of said, you know, the rich person, you bring him up to the front, you sit him in the front of the sanctuary, and the poor person, you say, take the seat in the back. Not in the Presbyterian church. <laughs> Presbyterian church, what happens? The rich person sits in the back, right? The worst seats are up front. <laughs> okay. Right? You guys all know that you want the back seat. How many of you have your seat in the sanctuary? How do you feel when somebody's sitting in your seat? <clears throat> Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Try that on the sides when it comes to the Christmas Eve service and you've shared the whole row or your family waiting outside. Okay. How was that on the patio? On Sunday morning. How's that with your neighbor? Or with the person who just cut in front of you? See? Our call is to reflect who we are. So he gives us an example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold rings, you know, and, and that was kind of the sign in um, James Day, you know, lots of rings, um, probably a store-bought clothing, linen clothing that somebody else wove rather than was homemade. And a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated? Have you not judged the worth and the value and the character of an individual? And become judges in your thoughts? <coughs> this was a problem in James's church. He's not just using an illustration that doesn't exist. This was going on in the church of James' day. People would come in and say, you're Jew, you're Gentile. I want to be with my Jewish friends. I don't want to be with my Gentile friends. In fact, in Acts, what happens? All of the Hellenistic Gentile Christians were saying, the Jews are all getting all the best food. Our widows are starving. There was discrimination in the church. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, basically when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he begins that whole 
passage talking about the fact that I don't have anything good to say about you guys. Because when you gather to worship, those of you who are rich come first and you eat and drink and enjoy each other and then those who are poor come late and there's nothing left to share. But instead you should all come recognizing Jesus when you break the bread and drink the cup. And if you have problems with another person and you haven't gone and solved those problems between each other, then don't take the cup. See? These problems that James are talking about were problems that existed in the church and still exist in the church today. In fact, as I was reading, and I am gonna use an illustration of the Methodist church, and I don't mean in any way to tear down the Methodist church because they're a great, great church. But Methodism was started in England because coal miners weren't welcome into the Anglican church. And so John Wesley, in order to go and tell them about the love of God, just went out and had these open air revivals and people came to know Jesus who otherwise weren't welcome in church. And Methodism started. And about 100 years later, there was this guy by the name of Booth who started the Salvation Army. He brought all of his friends to the Methodist church. Got kicked out. Because they were all from the streets, all the poor. I mean, it just took how many years? And again, the Methodist church was right back to where they all started. We keep doing the same thing. I mean, if you want to draw a crowd, bring a celebrity to church on Sunday. And everybody will show up, right? That celebrity has nothing more to share than you have to share. See? Um, There's a, as I was studying this, um, there's an individual I know who's a Christian and he, he cannot seem to keep himself out of jail. Okay. He just can't. And the last time he was out and then found himself back in, it finally hit me. God needs this individual behind bars because his ministry behind bars brings others into the kingdom. Now, I have a real tendency, or we have a real tendency, to judge this person, somebody who just basically is a felon, who doesn't have their act together. And I wanna sit back and say, this is a child of God who's bringing people into the kingdom of God who otherwise would never hear of the love and the grace of Jesus. And God looks at me and says, who are you to judge that individual? See? I mean, really, Mother Teresa, if I took off the garments and you just happened to see Mother Teresa without knowing who she was, you probably wouldn't have had much to do with her. See? James is saying, are you judging people? By what are you judging them? 
Is it their education? Is it the way they dress? Is it the way they carry themselves? God comes and says, I chose the poor of the world in order that they might become rich. Um, says it better if I read it. Brothers and sisters, what were you when you were called? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were of influence. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised and the things that were not in order to nullify the things that were so that no one can boast before him. When I judge others by worldly standards, I potentially can miss God. So James goes on. He says, listen, brothers and sisters, God has not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? That's a fascinating word. God chose. God made a decision to go out and act. He didn't wait until we came to him. He actually chose us first. As I read this um, passage, there were two verses that kept coming up over and over again. And, and one was Jesus' parable about the sheep and goat in Matthew 25, and the other is the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, we'll go on and I'll come back to that. Um, well, I'll say it. And the other was the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan starts really where, where James talks about it. He says, you know, the royal law of, of Jesus or the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Um, a man comes to Jesus and says, well, who's my neighbor then? And Jesus said this, he said, there's this man on the road to Jericho and he fell amongst thieves and robbers and he got beaten up and he lay to die on the side of the road. And a Levi and a priest come by and the man's right smack in the middle of the road and they basically walk all the way around the man and continue on their way to Jerusalem. They had to go out of their way to not see the man. But he said there was a Samaritan, a despised person amongst the Jews, who came along and saw the man and he chose to stop and get involved and bind up the man's mood and take him to an inn and pay for his care. And Jesus looked at the Samaritan, looked at the man, the rich young ruler, and said, who's the neighbor? And the response was, not the Samaritan. He wouldn't dare say that because he has to judge Samaritans, right? No. He said, the man who showed mercy. Okay. 
And we're going to come back to that word in a minute. But this man chose to see. Jesus chose to leave heaven, to come to us when we were beyond helping ourselves. And in a sense, what, John, what James is saying here is that we need to not just by accident or when it's convenient choose to love our neighbor. But we need to actually choose and take initiative to help our neighbor. That word mercy that is used there um, is, is sometimes used to be kind of like, you know, merciful and, and forgiving. But more often than not, when that word mercy is used in scripture, it's used of showing justice and defending the cause of the fatherless and of helping out those who are poor. That word mercy in scripture is used in the giving of alms and care to another person. Choosing to give up what I have to help the person who has not. But that means choosing to go to the person and entering into relationship and giving what I have to that person. Now, just a caveat here, we were reminded in leaders group this morning, that person who has that need for mercy might be poor, they also might be rich. But in going to that rich person, it's not going and seeing all that they have, but recognizing and entering into the relationship of where they're hurting and where they don't have. Okay. Not putting them on a pedestal, but coming to them as one created in the image of God and in need of Christ, just like all the rest of us. The ground is level at the cross. But even more, I think the passage wants us to go out and look for those in need, as Jesus did. James says, but you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you in the court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? What was really going on at this point in time is a couple things. It was really the rich establishment that was basically afraid of this new messianic movement and were blaspheming those people who were Christ followers and saying, oh, look, if that's what Christ wants, let him have it. If he's going to call that slave, let him call the slave. Okay? And so they're kind of blaspheming the name of Christ. Is, is what James is getting and what he's pointing to. It's really where the, the rich people who have the money to take the person who is poor to court to have them pay which, that which they owe them. In a sense, even though some of the practices that James is referring to here are different today, all too often is it not the rich establishment that is in the position to hold those who don't have down. Over and over again in scripture, we are warned against judges who take bribes. But do we not have a system 
whereby if you had the money for a good lawyer, you'd probably stand a better chance in our legal system. See, James is saying, watch what world system you're living in. Don't become a part of that system. Make sure you're living in the kingdom. For he goes on and he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, and, and I like that word royal, the kingdom law, the law of the kingdom that we're called to live in, the law of Jesus. Love your neighbor yourself, you're going to do right. But if you show favoritism, now the first favoritism was plural, meaning all different acts. This is particular acts. You sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You shall not commit adultery. The person who says you should not commit adultery also says you should not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. How many have cell phones? Anybody ever dropped their cell phone and got a nice little crack in it? Okay, it might just be a little crack, but guess what? It's cracked. And every time you look at it, you're going, crud. It's cracked. See? What James is saying, you break one law, it's not that murder's worse than, you know, adultery or, or vice versa, or, or, you know, he's not rating sins. What he's saying is if you break one, you've cracked your cell phone. It might only be a little cracked, but it's cracked. See? But here's something else what he's kind of saying. The law displays the character of God. See? Not, not all those legalistic rules that the Pharisees had, but the law that is in Scripture shows us what God's like. God is not an adulterous God. God has entered into a covenant relationship with us that says, I am going to love you no matter what you do, and I'm going to continue to come after you, hoping that you will receive my love no matter what you do. I'm not going to go after others. God is a faithful God. See, God doesn't murder personalities or people but is a loving and birth-giving and life-giving God. God is not a God of favoritism. See, the law shows us the character of God, and when we keep the law of God, then we show the character and the attributes of God. But we have a tendency to say, well, that's okay, you know what, I I'm keep 90% of it, you know, so what if I keep 10%? I spent time when I was growing up, and so this is this junior high image in a place called New Jersey. And New Jersey has kind of some mafia folks who float around, okay? And, and we used to live by this place called the Great Swamp, okay? And it was just this swamp where mafia folks would every now and then were known to kind of throw bodies. Yeah. I mean, a mafia folk doesn't have a problem with murder, but with each other, they're not gonna lie. 
So they can excuse murdering because they have honor with each other, right? Wrong. See, James is wanting to continue to say, quit deceiving yourselves. Are you really living in Jesus' kingdom? Are you living who you are as a bearer of the image of Jesus? Giving and sharing what you have with others. Because he ends, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs judgment. It is easy to read this and want to make all of this into a works type of stuff. Do this or you're not getting into the kingdom. Do this or you're not going to receive God's mercy. And that's really not what James is getting at. What James is saying is that your actions will show what is inside of you. Your actions will show your understanding of who you are. And if you have been a person who has received mercy, you will give mercy. God doesn't sit back and judge us first. He doesn't sit there with a clipboard first and say, what about, and you should have done this, and how come you didn't listen to me here? He's a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances who comes to us where we're at in our need and gives us what he has. And he calls us to receive it and live in who we are as his kingdom people bears the Shekinah glory, giving that glory to others. I wanna close watching this video, which kind of drills all this home from a different perspective. Let's watch. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. We want to receive but then all too often we hoard what you give us. Lord, um, you were willing to bear our pain. May we be willing to bear the pain of others. Lord, help us see. See those who aren't here, but also see those who are. May we find all in you, not asking others for prestige or recognition, but finding all in you, and then give all to others.
help us. In Jesus' name.